Following Jesus' triumphal entry in, entry in Jerusalem and cleansing of the temple for the second time, we find him in Luke chapter 20 as he is challenged one more time by the scribes and the chief priests and the elders. And in Luke 20 and in verse 2, they ask Jesus the question, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he that gave you this authority? The question of authority is one that is central to every Bible question, every religious practice, and every theological discussion. There are those today that mock the idea of a pattern or the idea of having biblical authority for everything you do or that you need authorization for things that involve the work and the worship and the organization of the church. I've been asked tonight to discuss this issue of authority and specifically I want to talk about how the Word teaches us. I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 15 and that's going to really be the springboard for most of our study tonight, Acts chapter 15. Sure good to see each one tonight. We have a nice crowd back on a Sunday evening. If you're a guest, we're glad to have you in our number and hope that you'll come back on other occasions to be with us. This study of authority that we're engaging in, I'm sure for a number of you will be something that you probably, if I, if I killed over, you could probably step right in and pick up because you've heard it many times and some of you taught it a number of times. And yet, as we think about the need for authority and to talk about it, we realize that over a course of time, there are people that are converted to Christ. There are people that place membership. And as I look out and I see some of these young people that may not really be conversant and are asked questions in, uh, by their friends or at school or others, why do you practice such and such over at the Church of Christ where you go? And if we're not careful, it is e easy for us, uh, even those of us that have been members of the body of Christ for a long time, to be stumped by that and just think, well, that's just kind of the way we do it, and not stop and think about the issue of Bible authority. So it's important for us ever so often, I think, to revisit some of these things. So I was glad when I was asked to do this, because uh, I've written, uh, written a workbook on authority. I'm uh, Glad to talk about authority, and I certainly believe in the issue of biblical authority. And as you're going to see tonight, I believe that there is a divine pattern that we can look in, and we can see the Bible itself becomes its own best textbook and explain to us how that we can establish authority. In the beginning, let me lay this groundwork. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul told Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, if I remember right, the 1611 version that I grew up with and memorized my verses of says, handling aright the word of truth. And that's a good translation, handling aright, or I like the idea, rightly dividing. And sometimes when I'm studying with people that know very little, if anything, about the Bible, I like to begin with this verse to say, you know, when you're studying the Bible, and you're talking about what we do in religious matters, you have to rightly divide it. You go, well, what does that mean? Well, there's a difference between the Old Testament and New Testament. There's a difference between the patriarchal dispensation of the law of Moses and the law of Christ. That, that's rightly dividing it. You have to rightly divide it by looking at a text in its context. Who is speaking and who is being spoken to? You have instances where the Holy Spirit has revealed things the devil said. And so you need to understand, who said, did God say this? Or is it something being recorded the devil said? There are recorded statements of uninspired people that are in the Bible. So all of that has to be understood. And those are just a few simple examples of the idea of rightly dividing the word. Then we come to something that is called hermeneutics. And by definition, hermeneutics is the art or science of interpretation especially applied to the Scripture. Now, let me just say right here that everybody has some kind of a hermeneutic. In other words, you may not have ever even thought about that, or this may be the first time some of you ever heard that word, but we do when we're looking at the Bible. 
number of years ago, I attended a meeting of brethren from different persuasions among us in Nashville, Tennessee. And it was an attempt by some conservative brethren to try to bring together some opposing thoughts within the churches of Christ. And so different men from different backgrounds and different persuasions were asked to speak. And I'll never forget, I heard a, forgot, I heard a fella talk about the new hermeneutic. And I didn't know there was a new hermeneutic, but he explained it. And here's what he said the new hermeneutic was. If Jesus went there, we can go. And if he didn't go there, we can't. Now, on the surface, that sounds pretty good until you start explaining that. And he said that's the only hermeneutic, by the way. I thought, well, I'm not so sure about that. But what you do is you end up taking pretty much whatever you want. If Jesus went and healed the sick, then we can go there, not visiting the sick, but going somewhere and building a church Christ hospital. See, that's the way he applied that. So anything, if Jesus fed the 5,000, then what's wrong with having a kitchen in the church building? And that, to some of us, that sounds almost incredible that you would come up with that kind of a way of biblical interpretation. But that was his hermeneutic. I've heard this hermeneutic. There's only one hermeneutic, and it's the law of love. And love surpasses everything. Well, that may sound kind of good on the surface, especially since our theme this year is love, and the greatest commandment is love, and the first two great commandments are love. And yet it is possible to have love apart from what God has revealed to us. And to love someone, in a sense, and yet not love the Lord enough to do exactly what he said. So you can't isolate the idea of love, the teaching of love, apart from everything else. And so you end up with a hermeneutic that's going to take you down the road somewhere where you don't want to go. So that's what I mean by that. Now, let's talk about this idea of interpretation because we might be a little bit skittish about that word. Say, oh, no, we shouldn't interpret the Bible. Well, I mean, everybody does interpret the Bible. You have to look at it and come to an interpretation, but I need to define what I mean by interpretation. ISBE defines it, I think, correctly this way. It refers specifically to the sacred scriptures. The science of interpretation is generally known as hermeneutics. While the practical application of the principles of this science is exegesis. Now, let me define that, if that's a new word to you. To exegete something is to dig into the text, and it's to do kind of what I was talking about a while ago. It is to look at the words and the usage of the words and the, and the context in which, uh, which the words are giving and, and those that spoke. That's to exegete. That's to dig. That's to pull out of what the text says, to pull it out of what is in the text. All right? He said, in nearly all cases, interpretation has in mind the thought of another. And then further, these thoughts expressed in another language than that of the interpreter. Stop there. Well, that fits certainly the Bible, because the Bible's written in three languages, isn't it? Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. And so the Bible has to be translated, in our case, into English. Now, Martin Luther, remember, translated the Bible into German. He caught a lot of flack in his day for doing that, because the powers of deed didn't, didn't want the common people to be able to read the Bible in their own language. And I don't speak German, but I've studied with people that are German, and they use the German Bible and it was kind of interesting, the German words that were used to translate from the Greek text, or Hebrew text as the case might be, that are different than words that we use in English. But the idea is to take what is in the original text, or the original language rather, we don't have the original autographs, but the original languages, then and translate those into another language, and then we have to exegete and understand what that means. He says, in this sense, it is used in biblical research. A person has interpreted the thoughts of another when he has in his own mind a correct reproduction or photograph of the thought as it was conceived in the mind of the original writer or speaker. It is accordingly a purely reproductive process involving no originality of thought on the part of the interpreter. Now, that's just kind of a long way, I guess, of saying that what you're trying to do is, what does the Bible say? What, what did Luke mean by this? What did John mean by this? What did Paul mean by this? What was he saying? Not what we think he said or something that we have in our mind, but what was in the mind of the biblical 
writer when the Holy Spirit revealed this to him. The dictionary goes on to say, if the latter, that is you and I as we are the interpreter, if the latter adds anything of his own, it is eisegesis and not exegesis. You say, well now, what's that? You, you explained exegesis, what's eisegesis? Well, eisegesis is trying to put our preconceived ideas into the text. In other words, it's deciding what we believe a thing to be that we start out with our own premise and then we start looking for biblical text to prove what we thought was the case already. See, that's eisegesis. Exegesis is looking into the text and drawing out of the text what's actually there instead of coming to it with our own prejudices. Then he says the moment the Bible student has in his own mind what was the mind of the author, the authors of the biblical books, when these were written, he has interpreted the thought of the Scripture. Now that's what we mean by biblical interpretation. Not our opinion, but we're pulling out, we are exegeting what the text says. Now, turn your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Acts chapter 15, and we want to look at an example here of some situ a situation where they're trying, the Christians are trying to understand what God's will is about a thing. And if we can look at that and see how they approach this issue, and we can apply the same principles to that, that will help us in our interpretation as well. Now, the background of this, the first two verses, it says, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain of the others should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So the problem was what is sometimes referred to as Judaizing teachers. There were those that had the notion that before Gentiles could be converted, before they could become Christians, they needed to be converted to Judaism and be circumcised according to Jewish custom as a prerequisite to Christianity. Well, as you see there, there was this dispute about that. Paul and Barnabas denied that this was the case. So as a result of this, this conference came about in Jerusalem. And it was a meeting, as we read there, the apostles and the elders in the church to discuss this. Now, it's important for us to understand both what this meeting was and what it wasn't. The Jerusalem conference was not called to formulate policy. It's not, not called to bring about some policy the church is going to adopt. Nor was it a form for compromise. Well, these folks believe this and we believe that, so tell you what, we'll just meet in the middle. No, no, it, wasn't, it wasn't a form for compromise. And it wasn't a conference in, w in which they would establish new truth or discover new truth. What the Jerusalem conference was, was that time for them to come together to understand what the truth was. It was to come to an understanding of what God had revealed and how this was to be applied, to know what God's revelation was for Gentiles. And so they're looking at this, how do we interpret what God has said and done? Is really what we're talking about here in Acts 15. And so we're going to see how they interpret it. And their method of interpretation, i.e. their hermeneutic, ought to be then, since they were the apostles, and they're inspired of God, and they were directed of God, and they left us an example, ought to be then a hermeneutic that you and I could follow when we face difficult questions or problems. And then we're going to see the application of this to our day and time as well. Now, what we begin with in chapter 15 is an appeal to necessary inference. Some of you have heard that expression before. Well, although the words necessary inference are not used, look with me in verses 7 through 11 and see if you don't see some inferences here. Beginning in verse 6 says, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter, and when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Now, what is Peter talking about here? Well, Peter is talking about what had happened in Acts 10 when he was called to go to the Gentile household of Cornelius and to preach the gospel. Now, when you look back, and we're not going to take the time tonight to read all of Acts 10. Most of you are familiar with it, but if you're not, then read Acts 10 in the first half of chapter 11. We will allude to that in a second. But what we're going to see in Acts 10 are four supernatural events that occurred. First of all, an angel appears to Cornelius in Acts 10. You remember Cornelius was a good man, a just man, one to fear God with all of his house. He was, he was a generous man with his resources, and he was a prayerful man. And he was praying to God. And the angel appeared to him and said, Your prayers have come up as an alms or memorial before God, and I want you to send to Joppa for a man by the name of Simon Peter, and he will tell you what you ought to do. So this is a miraculous event, obviously, as this angel appears to Cornelius. Well, about the same time, we read that Peter had a vision. And Peter had gone up on the housetop where he was staying there with Simon the tanner, and he'd gone up and said it was about the sixth hour to pray. And it says Peter became very hungry and he wanted to eat something. And he fell into this trance. And he saw this vision that opened up this great sheet. And I'm looking here about verses 11 and 12. And it came down. It was all kinds of four-footed beasts and animals and wild beasts and creeping things and birds. And the voice from heaven said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter's response was, no, Lord, no. He said, nothing, nothing, uh, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Well, this happened a second time, it happened a third time, and then the vision ended and uh, all this ascended back up into heaven. Well, if you're Peter, you're going to be doing exactly what Peter was doing. You're going to be scratching your head and saying, what in the world was that? that that's kind of the well over translation of that, but it says he wondered, <laughs> and in my version says, he wondered within himself what this vision meant. And then all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. And guess who's there? Gentiles. Cornelius had sent these people to tell Peter he's to come and to preach the gospel to them. Well, the Holy Spirit told Peter to go, nothing doubting. So what did Peter do? Peter went and he preached the gospel to the Gentiles. And guess what happened while Peter was preaching? The Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles. And so you have these supernatural events. In fact, the Gentiles actually spoke in different languages as a result of this. So, so here are these supernatural events that occur. Now, they're not commands to do something particularly, other than Peter was told to just go and to preach. But Peter draws some conclusions from that. What conclusion Peter drew from this, according to verse 28, is that no person is common or unclean. What was God saying with this vision? That, that no person is common or unclean. That all, all people are acceptable in the sight of God, even these Gentiles that up to this point had not been a part of the kingdom. Not only that, Peter said in verse 34 of chapter 10, that I perceive that God is no respecter of, of persons, but every nation he that fears him and works, right, works righteousness is accepted with him. And so this is an inference that Peter got out of what had occurred. And so then in verse 47, after they begin to speak in tongues, what's Peter's conclusion? He necessarily infers by the events that occurred, and God wants to accept them into the kingdom. Can I forbid water that these should not be baptized, just as we were at the beginning? And so, of course, when this happens, 
in chapter 11, it says, the apostles and brethren in Judea heard about it, and they came to Peter. And they weren't very happy. They said, you went in. I can almost hear this, can't you? You went in to uncircumcised Gentiles and ate with them. But Peter explained this, and he explains what I just went through with you all in chapter 10, all these supernatural things that happened. And after he explained that, he says in verse 17, if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And so Peter learned something from these events that occurred, and he drew conclusions, inferences, implications from this. And so when this conference comes about here in chapter 15, Peter doesn't get up and preach a sermon that thou shalt accept the Gentiles. He goes through all these events. And he explains these events and says, here's what happened. Here's the conclusion I drew from it. And this must therefore be the way it is that God wants to accept the Gentiles. So what was the hermeneutic he used? He used a method of interpretation of understanding the will of God by drawing from necessary inference or necessary implication. Well, then we move on to a, another method of interpretation of understanding what's the answer to this question. Do Gentiles have to be circumcised and converted to Judaism as a prerequisite to Christianity? Does God accept the Gentiles as they are to come into the kingdom? Well, now we have an example of approved apostolic example, and all we got is one verse. Look at this. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So Luke doesn't record the speech. We don't know how long it took. We don't know if it was just a little 10-minute synopsis of their missionary journey or if it was, you know, step by step, and they took an hour to explain this. We don't know. Luke summarizes this. This is the Cliff Notes version, or the Luke Notes version. In one verse, he covers everything that has happened, basically, in chapters 13 and 14 of Paul's missionary journey. But it's an, he's appealing by approved example. What's the example? Well, the gospel was taken to the Roman proconsul in Acts 13 and verse 12. And then in Acts 13, verses 42 through 48, we see that Gentiles in Antioch became Christians and they, they obeyed the gospel. In chapter 14 and verse 1, both Jews and Greeks obeyed the gospel. In chapter 14, verses 8 through 21, the gospel was preached to pagans that were also converted. And then in chapter 14 and verse 47, then they come back uh, to the elders and they give a report of all the things that God has done. That God has done these things. I got 47. I, don't, I think it's 27, okay? It's 27. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and how he, that's God, had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So what, what's Paul Barnabas doing? They're telling stories. They're giving examples. Well, this happened and that happened. We went here and we went there. And, and these people obeyed the gospel. And these Gentiles came into the kingdom. And, and God, never, God never said anything about them being circumcised or converted. This is what happened. They were baptized just like we were. And so by approved apostolic example, we see here that Paul and Barnabas make an argument, and what's the point? The point is, if God approved this in our missionary journey to accept the Gentiles into the kingdom, shouldn't we accept them also without any reservation? So that, that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas are doing here in chapter 15. Now, we come to a third way of interpretation, a third method of using hermeneutics, and that is a direct command. And this is found here beginning, okay, in chapter uh, 15 or verse 13. And we're going to see in this a quote from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. And so it says, And when they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, 
Listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And this, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David that has fallen down, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those among the Gentiles that are turning to God, that, that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has, has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So what does James do? And again, the question, can we accept Gentiles? Can, can Gentiles come into the kingdom without being uh, circumcised or being converted to Judaism? And so we have an argument from implication. We have an argument from the approved examples of what happened on Paul Barnabas' missionary tour. But then James appeals to Scripture. And he takes the prophecy of Amos that is a messianic prophecy concerning what is going to happen when the Lord comes, um, when the Lord came, the Messiah came, and the gospel was preached. And how that the rest of mankind, the Gentiles, are going to be called by my name. And so he's arguing from the direct command of Scripture. He's arguing from the prophets that this has been God's will all along that this happened. Now, we're not done yet. Because we see another method here of understanding what has occurred or is occurring. And that's what is sometimes called the law of exclusion or the silence of the scriptures now what what does that mean well look in verse 24 it says since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment what is he saying? These people that have been going around, these Judaizing teachers, and saying that the Gentiles have to be converted to, to Judaism and to be circumcised, we never said that. We, we never said that. Now, you know, the way folks are today say, well, you didn't say we couldn't preach it. Well, that's silly. That's silly. They weren't, they weren't commanded that. To whom we gave no such commandment. You ought not to be preaching that because just the very silence of this excludes you preaching something in addition to what we have been preaching and teaching. Silence, therefore, forbids it. To whom we gave no such commandment. Now, we've got one more, and that's called the law of expediency. And here's how the law of expediency fits into this passage. As they had talked about all of this, it says in verse 22, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Bersabbas and Silas, and leading men among the brethren, and then to write this letter, and then we have the letter beginning of verse 23 that goes all the way down through verse 29. You say, well, what, is, what does the law of expediency mean? Well, how are we going to now deal with this? We have, we have seen these arguments by inference, by ex apostolic example, by direct command, the law of exclusion, that God accepts the Gentiles. So what are we going to do about it? Well, there might be any number of ways to handle this. One way is to write a letter and uh, have the people we pick out go along with Paul and Barnabas and to take this to people and let this be known. Now, would that have been the only way to have done it? There might be any number of ways in which this could have been accomplished, but this was the method it was chosen. It was an expediency, if you please. It seemed good to them. 
All right? And so that's the method they choose. So let's look at some conclusions to this. How do you know something is a necessary inference? Well, common sense. <laughs> Does the language indicate a thing is so? And I'll give you a couple examples going in both directions on this. We talk about baptism. And there have been those, you know, in the book of Acts, you have household conversions. And so some groups have tried to justify infant baptism by saying, well, it says they baptized the whole household. And so that, if they baptized the whole household, that must mean you baptize babies. Now, is that a necessary inference? How many of you in the room tonight do not have babies in your household? Let me see your hands. Boy, quite a few of you, all right? So just right here in a small group like this, there are a lot of people having babies in their household. And so to say that infant baptism is authorized by Scripture because it, it must be necessarily inferred of, it, of household ba uh, baptisms, that's, not a, that's an unnecessary inference. It's not a necessary inference. Now, here's something that's a necessary inference. In John 3, it says that Jesus or John's disciples were baptizing in Salem because there was much water there. Well, what does that infer? Well, that infers to have baptism. You need more than just a cup of water. You need more than just a little water to sprinkle on someone. Now, we know the word baptism literally means immerse. And so we've got other ways to look at that. But there, there is an inference to why it said there was much water there. Because there was enough water that was suitable to immerse one. And so there are any number of places that you can look at the Bible and you can see the inference of things just like Peter could see what was God inferring by all these events. I'm accepting Gentiles. It was obvious. It was almost common sense. Well, how do you even know if an example is approved to God? Well, this could be a whole lesson of itself, but I'm going to just bullet these things for you a little bit to think about I'd be happy to answer any question anybody has about this lesson tonight because, again, a lot of this we could, we could take a lot more time on, okay? But let me just share with you these thoughts about it. Is the example uniform? Now, what I mean is, is it something that we see consistently through Scripture? For instance, people try to make fun of an of a episodic example and say, oh, if we follow an episodic example, we've got to meet in an upper room like they did in Acts 20. Because that's where they met, so therefore we, we got to meet there. No, that's not a uniform example. Because they met other places. They met in a temple court. They met on the riverbank. They met at homes. And so it's not a uniform example to say this is the way they always did it. So that's one test. All right, is the example in harmony with every other passage? And so if you try to take an example and say, okay, it has to be done that way, but it contradicts a plain passage of Scripture somewhere else, somewhere else, then that example is not exclusively binding. It's one way to do it, but it's not the only way. All right? So is it in harmony with all other passages of Scripture? Thirdly, is it universal in its application? The scope of the gospel is universal for people worldwide. And so to take an example, it must be within the realm of possibility for all people and not something that would just apply in a particular culture or particular time. What about the relevance of the example? Is it relevant in determining the will of God? For instance, where you assemble has no relevance on the command to assemble. It just, it just doesn't. We're commanded to assemble. And so if we, if we rent a hall or meet in a home or we put up a tent or we buy a building, all of that is carrying out the command to assemble. And so what is the relevance of the example? Does the example have limited scope? A good example of that would be passages to deal with miracles. Well, the age of the miraculous was ended. And so the things that have to do with that, it has a limited scope. A limited scope. Acts 8, the laying on of hands, a limited scope. And so as you look at an approved example, just these questions will help us determine whether or not that example is binding. Well, 
it's important to know what kind of command it is. A command ought to be pretty simple, but we know there are some commands that are very specific and other commands are generic. Just a simple example, the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Within that verse is both generic and specific. For instance, to go. Well, how do we go? Well, is it scriptural to buy a plane ticket today and go on an airplane and fly? Of course it is. Say, and I've heard people that try to make fun of the idea of applying these hermeneutics say, well, if you want to just follow the Bible, they didn't, Paul didn't get on an airplane. If you're going to follow what the apostles did, you're going to have to get on a camel or you're going to have to walk. Well, you, you missed the whole point. Uh, first of all, that is limited in its scope in the example. But secondly, the command to go is generic. And so whether you get on a ship like Paul did at times or you ride or you walk, it makes no difference how you go. But the command to preach the gospel is specific. And so we're to go to the world and to preach the gospel to people, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's specific. You know, we use this example when we're talking about music. And the kind of music, you know, there's vocal music, a cappella, and there's instrumental. What does God specify? Vocal, a cappella. By the way, I had a person ask me one time, we found out I was a preacher, and uh, one of our priests, and I told him, he said, well, you go to that church over there that, that believes it's wrong to have instruments? And I said, well, or no, I think he put it this way. He said, you go to that church that doesn't believe in music. I said, oh, no, we believe in music. We love music. I said, we have music every Sunday. He said, well, you know, some churches don't believe in music. They don't even have instruments. I said, well, all of our music is a cappella. He goes, oh, okay. Well, some of them, you know, don't have instruments. I said, is that right? Yeah, we're, we're a cappella. So anyway, you can figure that out. But that's what the Bible says. We're a cappella. That's singing. That's specific. Now, folks can make fun of that all they want. But nine times in the New Testament, we have a spe specific command. You know, one thing I know about that when, when people want to argue about it, you know, we got churches of Christ right now in our land that are compromised on that issue. Where I moved from in Kansas City, Missouri, the church over on the Kansas side, is introducing instrument they're introducing it in limited ways in some services in contemporary services and then they've got traditional services well that's just the camel getting its nose under the tent you see pretty soon it'll all be instrumental sooner or later but that's compromising what scripture says because god is specific about that so what kind of command is it is it a generic command or is it a specific command are we going to respect god's silence on the matter you see, when God has specifically commanded a thing, that excludes everything else in that kind, class, or category. And singing is a good example. Singing is specific when it comes to music. That excludes all other kind of music, doesn't it? Because that's a specific command. That's respecting God's silence. In fact, it comes back to what it says in Hebrews 7, verse 14, about Jesus being a high priest. In fact, let me just go to that passage. And the question is asked, could Christ be a high priest under the law of Moses? Why or why not? Well, Hebrews 7 and verse 12, for it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. What's the Hebrew writer's point? He couldn't be a high priest on earth because Moses was silent about it. He came from Judah. You see, the way folks want to argue today, God said the priests were to come out of Levi. And so someone comes along from the tribe of Judah and say, I want to be a priest. No, you can't be a priest. You're not from Levi. God didn't say not to. Isn't that the way people argue today? God didn't say, well, wait a minute. He said, though, the priests come from the tribe of Levi. Yeah, but I think, I think you're being discriminatory. I, I, I'm a good, why can't I be a priest just because I'm from the tribe of Judah? Well, Moses didn't say anything about it. Exactly, so I can do it unbelievable reasoning when god is silent on a thing and he's already specified something else in that kind class or category that excludes it you see of whom moses spake nothing that's authority that's a hermeneutic the silence of the scripture you see speaks no one has the right to subtract from what god has said nor does he have the right to add to god's word 
when God is silent. Deuteronomy 4.2 speaks basically the same thing. Then you have the law of expediency. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul said that all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. And so when we look at this law of expediency, before a thing can be expedient, it's got to be lawful. You come back to, to music, and someone says, well, the organ or piano is just an expedient. It's just an aid. How can it be an expedient when it's not lawful in the first place? And so an expedient must first be lawful. Look at this chart. The idea of everything that is within the realm of right is within the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so expediencies have to be within that realm. If it's outside that realm, and it's not an expedient because it's not lawful. The expedient's got to be inside that circle. If it's outside that circle, it can't be an expedient because it's not lawful in the first place. Not only that, it must edify. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 23, all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. So there might be something that is lawful to do, but it's not for the upbuilding of the body of Christ. It's, it doesn't edify. And so if it's not edifying to the church family, then is it expedient not to engage in that? And then it must not offend the conscience of a weak brother. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 32, Paul said, Give no occasion of stumbling, either to the Jews or the Greeks, or to the church of God. And so we need to be careful that we don't do things they're going to offend the conscience of a weak brother. Now, I know this lesson is a little longer than I normally do Sunday night or Sunday morning, but you are being very patient, so I'm going to finish up with an example here. And I tried to think of a new example for this lesson. That to me, the Lord's Supper is just one of the best examples to apply all of these points from Acts 15 on interpretation of Scripture and applying this biblical hermeneutic. So, let's look at the Lord's Supper. Why observe the Lord's Supper? Well, the first reason is, is express command. This do in remembrance of me. So, we have a command to observe the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what I command. All right? And he commanded it. Well, when do we observe it? Well, we have an approved apostolic example on the first day of the week they came together to break bread. You know, if you don't believe, a person doesn't believe in apostolic examples, then you have no authority on take the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. That's the only verse that specifically says that. And it's an example, but it's an approved apostolic example. And we've already seen that Paul and Barnabas argued from apostolic example in Acts 15, and we, so we know it's approved because God revealed it to us by the Holy Spirit that that's a proper line of, of argumentation and interpretation. And so we look at Acts 20 and verse 7. They met together on the first day of the week to eat the Lord's Supper. And so we can follow that example of when to observe it. Now, how often do we observe it? Well, every first day of the week. I remember as a teenager growing up, and my uncle had married a woman that was from one of the most popular denominations in the South, and where she went to church. They only had the Lord's Supper quarterly. And she liked to once in a while get arguments with my dad about this. And I remember hearing him talk about it. And she says, well, we only do it quarterly so it doesn't become commonplace. I think if you do it every week, it becomes commonplace. And that, that was her opinion about that. The only problem with that is, by necessary inference, we understand it's on the first day of the week because every week has a first day. Now, in Exodus 20, verse 7, Moses gave the commandments that God gave him to the children of Israel. says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, can you imagine a Jew coming up to Moses, say, uh, Moses, which Sabbath now are we talking about? Uh, we just kind of thinking, you know, we've been doing this every Sabbath, but it doesn't say every Sabbath, and we're kind of thinking we ought to go to a monthly observance because we got other things we want to do on the Sabbath. Well, I can't imagine that because it is implied in Exodus 20 and 7 that every week had a Sabbath, and when the Sabbath rolled around, then you keep it. You know, a lot of people really have a problem understanding this. And I want to tell you something that's shocking. We have today a generation of young people that are growing up in the Lord's Church that are questioning the very thing that I'm talking about tonight. I see them making fun of, they call it CENI. 
commands, examples, necessary emphasis. C-E and I. They make fun of it on Facebook and mock the idea of, of inferences and examples. They mock the idea. Well, let's don't, let's don't mock what is revealed in Scripture because Peter argued from the very idea of inference. And we use language all the time, and we understand necessary implication in everyday language all the time. I'll give you an example. You go down to Chick-fil-A today, get you uh, some chicken noodle soup, Chick-fil-A sandwich, closed. You see a sign like this, closed Sunday. Inside, there's a plaque there, Mr. Truett Cathy. That's Truett Cathy that founded Chick-fil-A, and he explains about Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. I'd just like to ask Mr. Cathy, just tell us which Sunday are you closed? Does anybody have trouble understanding that? Has anybody ever gone into Chick-fil-A and say, are you all going to be open this Sunday? They go, no, we're closed on Sunday, the sign. Yeah, I saw the sign, but I just wondered, is that like monthly or is that like quarterly or annually or semi-annually? I mean, that is silly and absurd uh, beyond even thought to go ask a thing like that. And we see stuff like that all the time. I lived in Hillsborough, Ohio when I first started preaching, and our banks are, and I don't know why they were closed on Wednesday, but for some reason the banks in that little town closed on Wednesday, and it just said closed Wednesday. I understood that because when Wednesday rolled around, they ain't going to be open. I thought I'd have a little fun with this. We were having breakfast one day at Pass Grill Beach and off of St. Pete Beach in Florida, and there's a little restaurant there that was closed on Monday. And we were there on another day, and we were having breakfast. And it was kind of one of these country kind of places, you know, where the waitresses call, call you uh, hun and stuff like that. And what do you want, hun? What are you going to have? And so you order, and I, she'd come around and I said, say, I got a question. I saw your sign out there that said closed Monday, and I'm just curious which Monday you're closed. My wife is like ready to crawl under the table. But preachers will do anything for a sermon. That lady cocked her head and looked at me like I was from outer space and just asked the dumbest question in the world, which would rank up there pretty high with the dumb question. But she kind of chuckled a bit. She said, you haven't been up very long, have you? And walked away. Just walked away. Because closed Monday means closed every Monday. And when the disciples ate the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, guess what that means? That means every first day of the week. The law of exclusion tells us that any other elements are forbidden because Jesus instituted unleavened bread. And for, oh, by the way, I don't want to miss a chance on this point. Where in the Bible, now Stephen, I hope I have not forgotten this. I didn't, I didn't fact check myself, but I'm, like 99.99999% sure I'm right on this. I don't believe it says in Matthew 26, unleavened bread. Now, you all fact check me on that. I just don't believe it says unleavened bread. You know why we take unleavened bread? Because it was a Passover and all the leaven had to be removed from the house. There wasn't any leaven. And so by necessary inference, we understand that the bread that they used at the Passover was unleavened bread. That's, that's necessary inference. You know, even our friends in the denominational world use unleavened bread, I think. Maybe some of them are changing, but last time I checked, they were still using it. Why? Because there is a necessary inference that it must be. What about adding something else? What about adding RC colon moon pie? Say, well, that'll make the Lord's Supper a little more palatable. Well, that's silly. And we see that when it comes to the Lord's Supper. It's funny, though, folks can't see when it comes to other aspects of worship or the work of the church. That's a law of exclusion. If the silence forbids all other elements. And then finally, when on the first day of the week? Well, the law of expediency says it can be taken any hour on the first day of the week. When I was on a mission trip to Kazakhstan several years ago, that culture worked seven days a week. And the brethren couldn't meet until Sunday night when everybody got off work. And so I followed the apostolic example and preached to them till midnight. No, not really. I didn't do that. But we met at night. We met at night. Was that wrong? I, I was in a gospel meeting one time. And uh, the brethren there didn't own, own a building. And they had to rent a facility. 
And the only time they could get it was at one o'clock in the afternoon. And that's when we met and had the Lord's Supper. It was so weird, though, getting up in the morning on Sunday morning and like, you know, kind of sleeping in and having a breakfast. And I said, well, let's take a walk. I wonder what people do on Sunday morning. Don't go to church. And I found out they mow the yard. They wash their cars. They their their boats are going out. They're going boating or doing all these things. But it felt really, I almost felt like I was sinning. I, I, you know, it's, but I wasn't because it didn't make any difference what time we meet. Um, where I moved from in Kansas City, we did meet on Sunday night. We met on Sunday morning three times, 9, 10, 11. In fact, some brethren were a little concerned that we might be going astray and going into apostasy, you know, because the apostles met on Sunday night. Well, if you meet on the Lord's day and you eat the Lord's Supper, then haven't you done what the Lord said, regardless of what time it is, morning, noon, or night? Okay, that's, a, that's expediency. And so what might be expedient for one group, not another. You sure have listened good. I know, I, again, I've taken longer than normal, but I didn't know how to do this lesson and do it the way I wanted to do it without taking some time to explain it. And I hope I have explained it thoroughly. If I haven't, and there's questions, Will you please come to me and, and please correspond with me or whatever so we can discuss it. And it's what we want to do here at the West Main Church is follow what the Bible says. We don't want to go beyond what it says. We don't want to fall short of what it says. We don't want to make up rules that God hadn't made either. We just want to follow what the Word says and apply a biblical hermeneutic. And I pray God will bless us that end. As we close tonight, we sing the song has been selected. If you owe a duty to God and we help you in any way, and being right with God, we encourage you to come as we stand and while we sing.